0: Welcome back to Chartology, where we examine the principles and application of the Duke theology chart, and today we're talking about everyone's favorite subject, your opinions. More about that after the music. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about His Word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Uh. Something to say, I think, is important but not essential. Would be like the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, oh wow! Okay. And I hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is why church nurseries are unscriptural and wrong, and so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. All right, well, as we get into this third column today just a couple of things i'd like to acknowledge as we think about our chart we do have a little bit of a unique layout with our chart from other it's unique from other theological triage or doctrinal taxonomy models that are out there most of those other models don't get into conscience matters i do believe there are some that do but many do not and the reason why ours does is because we see this as a biblical category in scripture As we have covered with the last several episodes of Chartology, we've looked at primary doctrine. These are things that Scripture speaks to and is very, very clear about what the Scripture has to say about those things. Regardless what hermeneutical methodology we're bringing to the table, the Scripture is clear about those things. And so we do not have the freedom to deviate from those things and still call that biblical Christianity. No, we must adhere to the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Secondary issues, is what we discussed in the last episode, these would be things that we would say the Scriptures do speak to these things, but our conclusions about what the Scriptures are actually teaching are going to be governed by a hermeneutical methodology, the, the method of interpretation that we're bringing to the table. Different approaches are going to lead to different conclusions on a variety of things, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ despite those differences. We're still part of the same global universal church, but our conclusions are rooted in the text itself. When it comes to this third column, we really are dealing with a different category of things. These are things to which the scriptures do not speak directly. We may still have convictions about these things based on applications of principles that we do find in Scripture, but we have to admit that the Scripture doesn't actually speak directly to these things. Our convictions are not rooted in biblical teaching on that thing itself, but rather an application of principles that lead us to certain convictions. So doubtful things, these are, these are not going to be major doctrines. Doubtful things, these are not going to be issues of sin or morality, Scripture is clear about those things. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about matters of conscience, things that scriptures do not speak directly to. Now, we're going to get into some biblical texts that, that help us see this as a category in Scripture, and you know, I was joking with Jeremy about this episode that, you know, I could just read Romans chapter 14 and just call it a day, because that pretty much covers it, and there's, there's a lot of reality to that. But I do want us to see five specific principles that are drawn not only from Romans 14, but from a few other places in Scripture about this category of doubtful things and how we should think about how we interact with one another with whom we have disagreements over these opinions, these doubtful things. Now, I'll mention that the, the heading on our chart, this third column, we've called it Doubtful Things, and that's drawn from the New King James Translation of Romans 14, verse 1, which says, "...to receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things." That's where that language comes from. Different translations render it differently. The ESV says that we are not to quarrel over opinions. All right, so these are things that we're convinced of, but scripture is not giving us clear instruction on this, and yet we're still convinced of that. And so Paul gives different examples within the text where we see the first principle is that we do have freedom in Christ regarding these sorts of things. Verse 2: One who one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This is a huge key concept here. We have freedom in Christ about these things. We're not to be passing judgment on one another, to be viewing them with disdain, or to be despising one another based on them having a different conviction in these areas than what we have come to. Verse 4 Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God has accepted the individual who is coming to different conclusions than you, just as he is accepting you on the same thing, but a different different conclusion. So again, these are not morality things. These are not you know, black and white, objectively sinful things. These are not key major doctrines. These are things that Scripture does not speak directly towards, and we're coming to different conclusions. Paul says it's okay. God has accepted him. God has welcomed him. God has approved him. So, the first principle that we have to acknowledge is that we have freedom in Christ to agree to disagree over some of these things. The second principle is that while we have freedom in Christ, we must be governed by our own conscience in these matters. I'm going to skip down to verse 10 where Paul says, "Why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? We must all stand before the judgment seat of God." Rather than looking at at what your brother is doing and, and how they're coming to their conclusions, Paul says you actually ought to be looking internally because you're the one that's going to have to give an account to the Lord for your own actions. And then down in verse 23, he says, "...whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." Paul says, yes, we do have freedom in Christ to disagree about these things, but whatever your convictions are, you better abide by that. If your conscience is is bothering you in an area and it says, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, don't do it, for to you it actually is sin." Whatever is not from faith is sin. So we must be governed by our own consciences in these matters. That, that thing, these things become clear black and white sin issues when we begin to violate our own conscience. Principle number three is we must let others be governed by their own consciences in these matters. So if I look at verses 13 through 15 of Romans 14... Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. This goes back to we must be governed by our consciences. If that's what we think it is, for us it's that thing. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We must be governed by our own conscience, but we must allow others the freedom to be governed by their own conscience as well. And when it comes to this concept of a stumbling block, I think something we need to be clear about is what a stumbling block is and what it is not. A stumbling block, I believe, could be defined as leading others to violate their conscience in a doubtful thing, in a matter of opinion. So, an example of this might be from uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 and following, where Paul's talking about food sacrificed to idols. He says, not all possess this knowledge. He's talking about, okay, there's no—idols aren't actually anything real. It's just wood. It's just stone. They're not real. For As far as we're concerned, there's really only one true God. But he says in verse 7, not all—however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through— through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And then he says, "'Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple,' Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So, the the key thing here is recognizing that, a stumbling block is leading others into sin in that area where they are, they, they are emboldened. Like, oh, man, you know, my conscience bothers me about that, but I see them doing it, so I'm going to participate in it as well. That's where we're crossing lines. That's where we're becoming a stumbling block. A stumbling block is not someone who is offended at my liberty. So, if someone is offended that I eat M&M's and they, oh, I cannot believe you eat M&M's, that's just a horrible thing. Christians should not eat M&M's. Well, I'm not sinning by eating an M&M in front of them I don't believe. Now, maybe I'm flaunting my rights and maybe that can be an issue of pride and, and, and should not be done in that way, but... But we should not be feel guilty about eating M&M's in those sorts of scenarios. I'm only sinning if if they believe it is wrong for them to eat M&M's, and I'm somehow influencing their actions to violate their conscience to eat M&M's. Okay, we, we want to avoid—there's something called the—that can be called the tyranny of the weaker brother, where uh, just because someone is offended at, at, at our freedoms and the things that we're— uh, with the freedom that we have in Christ, that they're offended by that, that we just limit ourselves in all these areas, and we bind our own consciences based on that. That's that's not abiding by this principle of letting others being governed by their own conscience. Now, we need to allow one another that freedom, and we need to allow one another—we uh, need to recognize what a stumbling block is and what it is not. And so, that leads us to the fourth principle of don't condemn yourself by what you approve. This is Romans chapter 14, verse 22— The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You don't have to judge yourself in these matters. You know, if someone else is offended by your actions, well, that's kind of on them. (laughs) They are ignoring the biblical commands to, they're, they're instructed to not pass judgment upon you just as you're instructed to not pass judgment upon them. So you don't need to condemn yourself if someone else is offended by your actions. Colossians 2:16, "Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. Now, the context of Roman, uh, of Colossians 2 is, is more about a legalistic side of things of trying to enforce Judaistic practices upon believers. But I think there's a a principle that that extends beyond that to this as, okay, you know, it, the, one of the examples that Paul is going to use in Romans 14 is if one man regards one day as holy, another one regards all day as alike. Well, that's that's the, the the religious calendar, right? That's that's what's at question there, and the same thing is in question in Colossians chapter two, and Paul says, don't let people judge you about that. If you have freedom there, you have freedom there. They don't need if if they're judging you about that. You don't need to pay attention to that. The issue is if you are causing them to participate in something that their conscience would prohibit. So, that, that is where we need to be careful about assembling stumbling block, but we don't need to bind our own consciences according to the conscience of others. And so, in a similar way, Paul says—now, now this, this text is a little bit more uh, complex, uh, but there's, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10— Paul says, all things are lawful, but all, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. He's like, all right, we know that there's no such thing as real idol, but for the sake of conscience, it's just sometimes it's better just not even to know. And then he's going to go on to say, Down in verse 27, but if the unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For if someone says to you, Oh, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And this context is different. This is a believer with an unbeliever, and an unbeliever says, hey, I'm feeding you this food that was sacrificed to my false god. In that case, for the sake of that individual to make it clear that you are not worshiping their false god, you don't participate in that. You say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't eat this. But that's not for your own conscience' sake. You're not binding your own conscience in this area. You're not you're not being judged for that. You're saying no. This is for the sake of his conscience, so that it's clear for him that I am not an idolater, that I do not worship his false god. So we need to keep those categories straight about about how we are binding and loosing our consciences. If someone, if a brother in Christ has an issue, again, I'm using the M M&M example. It's trite, but. That I think the Triton actually helps illustrate the point a little bit. If someone has an issue with you eating M and M's, that's their problem. Unless you are leading them into eating M and M's when it violates their conscience, that's when it is an issue. Fifth principle. Before we move on to some other things that we still need to pursue wisdom in these areas. Just because there's freedom in Christ and there's liberty in Christ and because uh, we have different opinions and God says, I've accepted you, that doesn't mean that we can approach these things with just a complete lackadaisical approach and just, ah, none of these things matter. I can just do whatever I feel like. No, we still need to be intentional. We still need to think through, okay, are there biblical principles that would inform what my decision ought to be in these areas? We need to think clearly about those things. Because ultimately, we are accountable to the Lord. Romans 14, verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Yes, we have con- we have freedom, we have liberty, but we still have to give an account to the Lord. So I want to be a good steward of my decisions and my conscience and my liberty in that way. Verse 19, Romans 14, 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. As we pursue wisdom, as we think about these things, we want to be wise and think about hey, how can I pursue peace and mutual upbuilding with my brothers and sisters in Christ in this area? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Now, this is where most commentators would say that Paul is quoting something that maybe the Corinthians said, and then he's issuing a corrective to that. And so in the ESV, there's quotation marks around some of these things, like all things are lawful for me, yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then he's going to go on to talk about fleeing sexual immorality and engaging in these different things. And Paul says, yeah, you know, there, we may have freedom in Christ in certain areas, but just because we have that freedom doesn't mean it's good for us. It doesn't mean we can flaunt that freedom just because, hey, we just feel like it. No, no not, not everything's helpful. And I refuse to be brought under the domination of anything. So even if I have freedom in that area... For the sake of wisdom, there may be times when it's right to abstain. Similarly, uh, Paul is going to say again, back going back to chapter 10, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then he's going to say that we need to do whatever we do, eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. So we must pursue wisdom. And so I think of Ephesians chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are, Are evil. And so we have these reminders for us that these things really do matter just because they are uh, in this third column, because they are conscience matters, because they are areas in which we have freedom and liberty in Christ. It does not mean that these things don't matter. It does not mean that these things are not important. It does not mean that we can uh, just completely not think about these things. No, we have a responsibility and an obligation before God to think about these things. Now, let's look at the chart here because we want to provide the definition that are based off of these biblical texts. And again, for you YouTube viewers, I have it up on the screen. Uh, for those on the podcast, dotheology.com chart. Take a look at the chart there. Doubtful Things, the third green column on the right, Conscience Matters That Affect Friendships. That's the heading across the top there. Uh, based on our different convictions— this could affect who we hang out with, uh, the company that we keep, the, the activities that we engage in. It may affect our friendships. We can have multiple individuals who are members in good standing in the same local church, and yet uh, the, the, who they spend their time with could be impacted by our consciences, and that's okay. We have to recognize that, that that's okay. The definition that we have on the chart, these issues are to be discerned individually as the Spirit will bind and loose Christian consciences differently. These are matters of wisdom and foolishness. They are not inherently right or wrong. The text that we looked at bore that out where we have the principle to obey your God-given conscience and don't cause others to stumble and be wise. That is what we want to pursue when it comes to the chart. Now, as you look at the chart there, there's a whole bunch of different things listed here. Uh, and this this is the column that could, is literally bottomless. Anything that you can think of in life, any any decision that you might try to make, almost all of it in life could all fit into this third column that we have to think through. Uh, there's always things like you know, alcohol, Bible translations, clothing, food, hobbies, holidays, mission field, etc. All these things are matters of, of conscience, and we have freedom in Christ in these different categories— in future weeks, I do plan to get into some of these issues and justify why we believe they are in the column that they belong in, that, they, that we've placed them in here. But I'm probably not going to do a comprehensive walk through this chart on these points simply because it's so endless, like the, this conversation could literally never end. One thing that is crystal clear, though, or not crystal clear, but one thing that is critical is what I meant to say. One thing that is very critical for us to remember as we think about this, though, is that line that's at the top of the chart where it says, Primary doctrines should not be violated by other doctrines. These objective truths inform and live at convictions and the conscience matters. What does that mean? This means that when it comes to things in this third column, we have freedom in Christ in these areas, but not if that leads us to rub up against primary doctrine issues. So, for example, the very first thing listed in the doubtful things column is the issue of alcohol. I do not believe that the scriptures teach us that it is inherently wrong for anyone to consume alcohol. However, the scriptures do teach that it is objectively and inherently wrong to be drunk. And so, if our freedom in Christ leads us to run up against the clear morality teaching of the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Scriptures, we are then violating primary issues. It is no longer a doubtful thing. It is now a crystal clear thing. And so, the same could be said for many of these things listed in this area uh, where uh, the media that we consume, well, we have freedom in that area, but we don't have freedom to view things like pornography, that violates a primary issue. And so those sorts of things where we have to limit the application of this based off of the primary column, right? We have to look through the primary column even at doubtful things. As we continue to to move and think about different things in the relationships of how we think about the different columns in the chart and how we interact with one another, uh, one thing that I wanted to note as we think about these different columns is now we've done an overview of each column where we place things in the column, I, we're trying to do the best job that we can to place them biblically, but we've I've noticed that the people who tend to get things out of place in the chart do so for different reasons. I've noticed a trend that it's the theologically liberal who tend to bring primary things down. They would minimize the importance of primary doctrines and try to bring them and say, oh, well, that's a secondary thing or a tertiary thing. We don't need to worry worry about that, think about that and they denigrate and they diminish primary doctrine. On the flip side, it's the theologically conservative are those who would tend to be more fundamentalist, and I am a card-carrying fundamentalist myself. Uh, I try to be a biblical fundamentalist and not a cultural fundamentalist, uh, but those who are on the fundamentalist side of the spectrum are going to tend to elevate things that are in the doubtful things category or the secondary things category and elevate them up to the primary level and make them issues of fellowship and issues of, uh, of heresy in many cases. And so those are the things that we're trying to avoid. We don't, we don't want to slip into theological liberalism that brings things down. We don't want to slip into a cultural fundamentalism that raises things up inappropriately. No, we want to be biblical, understanding what the Word of God has to say about these things and identifying it and placing them accordingly. So for that reason, uh, we're going to spend some time examining the different points within these within these columns. What, why do things belong in the column that we have placed them in? And get into more of that in future discussions. So I hope that is helpful for you. I hope it kind of just sets the table for us as we begin to look at individual doctrines from this point moving forward. <laughs> Well, a book recommendation that I have for you today is this book titled Free Indeed by Richard Gans. Now, Richard Gans has a very interesting testimony. He was once a clinical psychologist before coming to faith in Christ and rejecting, uh, he, rejecting a non-biblical counseling approach. And so he has a very interesting background with that, but he is, he's, he's rejects uh, secular psychology and has embraced biblical counseling. What does the word of God say? How is it applied to our lives? And this book is a tremendous book, free indeed. Of course, it's drawing from uh, the language of Jesus in the Gospel of John. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so he breaks down this concept. But what is freedom in Christ? What does that look like? And he talks about how there's freedom from sin in Christ, there's freedom from self in Christ, and there's also freedom from others in Christ. And that's where it really ties in with this episode of, of looking at the Doubtful Things column, how there is freedom in Christ to, to uh, engage and participate in a variety of things that scriptures don't directly speak towards. And he, he really does a really excellent job in this book talking about the, the freedom that we have where we don't have to demand our own rights— but we also don't have to be tyrannized by the expectations of others. And when I read this book, I read this book back in my early seminary days. Uh, This would have been back in the year 2014, I do believe. And I was just really encouraged by what was here because So often there are times where expectations get placed upon you about what what other people think you ought to be doing, what you should be engaged in, and reading that book and the chapters on the freedom from others, I I, I don't have to bind my conscience according to what other people think I should or shouldn't be doing. If my conscience is clear, I can pursue what the Lord would have for me and rest in knowing that the Lord has accepted me. The Lord has welcomed me, not on the basis of my own effort and my own actions, but on the basis of what Christ has done, because the Son has set me free and I am free indeed. It's a very freeing concept and and tremendously encouraging, and I do encourage uh, you to read that book and to consider some of the content there and to consider, uh, you know, maybe, am I putting unfair expectations upon others that need to not be there? And how can I free myself from the tyranny of the expectations of others? So uh, that's a great resource, of course. He talks about a lot more things than that. That That is just a couple of chapters that I talked about right there. He talks about many other concepts when it comes to the concepts of freedom and freedom in Christ. And I, I found it to be very encouraging and helpful, and I do commend it to you. So, Free Indeed by Richard Gans. <laughs> Well thank you very much for listening to this episode of Chartology. I hope it is helpful and beneficial for you. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions or derogatory remarks, you can direct those to show at do and I will read those at the very least, even if I do not reply. But I I, I believe I'm pretty good about replying to most most emails. I don't always get to all of them, but I get I get to most of them. So feel free to reach out through that means. Uh, You can also reach out on x.com, at Ken Chipchase. You can find me there as well. Well, until next time, I hope that this episode has equipped you to continue to do theology for the glory of God. God bless.